0: Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of That Anthro Podcast. This week we have special guest Dr. Danielle Curran, a professor at UCSB and a trained bioarchaeologist, as well as a forensic anthropologist. Dr. Curran was such a pleasure to have on the show, and this is definitely the longest episode we've had, but it is quality and she's so fascinating, so stick around, buckle in, maybe get a cup of coffee or tea. And enjoy the interview with Dr. Curran. Hi, Dr. Curran. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Gabby. It's so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for coming on today, especially it being summer. And I'm sure you have other things going on, and you've been such a help and inspiration to me. So I'm really excited for everyone else to hear how awesome you are. And all, oh, oh, Daisy, come here. Oh, are you, how is Daisy? She's good. She wanted to join apparently.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Canine Companion are, yes. uh, is, is great. Excellent. Um, yeah, no, I am, I'm, I'm really happy to be here and, um, you know, talk a little bit about anthropology as it relates to UCSB and I guess more broadly. So
0: mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. So to start off, um, this is something that I don't even know. Where did you do your undergrad and did you know going in what you want to major in or did you kind of discover that in college?
1: Well, so I I found um, a piece of writing I did in second grade where it says, I want to be like an archaeologist when I grew up to discover things ah. and stuff. So, I mean, it hasn't, it's, you know, it um so I I got I guess the seed was planted pretty early um I uh, there were uh, I'm from Virginia the Washington dc metro area and because there's a lot of kind of colonial historic sites as early as like sixth grade I was able to um, go on like weekend archaeology you know of ancient Doing ancient uh, excavations at uh, civil war forts or old plantations, and that really got me um, kind of jazzed up about archaeology when I was sixteen. I think my parents wanted to get rid of me, so they let me go down to Peru and work on an archaeological pro- uh, project so um and I was the the youngest one there by far, but it really cemented my um, passion to work in um I work in archaeology and work in the Americas. In fact, I had been trying to get on a project for a long time. Um, but everyone said, you know, you have to be in college, you can't do it when you're in high school and stuff. And there were there were there ended up being two projects I could go on. And one was in Peru, and the other was in Belize. And uh, at that time in my life, I was really scared of spiders and like the idea of tarantulas. (laughs) And I figured that there'd be more in the jungles of Belize than in like the North coast desert of Peru. And, and now I've been working there 21 years. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So when I went to, uh, when I I I was like
0: field work gets you over the, the fear of spiders pretty quickly. I know it it did for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I enjoy having, um, colleagues in the field who enjoy uh excavating graves and burials um and who who do not have arachnophobia or at least as as strong as I have it's getting a little better but um yeah so uh it was a a kind of a formative experience and um in doing that I decided that yeah I do want to go to a college where I can I can you know uh, study archaeology, anthropology, but also one that would, um, that had a college that would kind of put me in the pipeline to a good graduate program. Because ultimately, what I wanted to do was kind of research and teach and kind of just share the, the love and enthusiasm that I, um, that I had for this topic with other, other people, especially other young people. And so um, I ended up, uh, uh, going to Brenmar College, which is a women's college um, in outside of Philadelphia. And it's, I guess it it has a long tradition of um, training women in anthropology, some of the um, most famous and especially kind of trailblazing women in anthropology, archaeology, um, uh, came out of Brenmar. Um, it sounds of, like it was a good place for you. Yeah, it was. Well, it's funny. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was empowering. It was great to be with the sisterhood. Um, but at the same time, after two years in, you know, in the nunnery, I'm joking, mm-hmm. but in that environment, I said, well, this is kind of a- a- as far removed as I can get. You know, being in the mainline Philadelphia, it's kind of the farthest away I can be from, uh, you know, the dusty, dirty mm-hmm. uh, trenches of Peru. So, um, I took a year off school um, to kind of test my mettle as an anthropologist, um, and in that and um, and I, I didn't have a lot of great guidance. It's a small college; there's only twelve hundred people, but um, and maybe like. There, there might be thirty archaeology majors, so it's one of the actually the biggest majors on campus. But it Mawr is known for um, having sending the most women to get their PhDs in anthropology, so that was a big reason I went there. But certainly, uh, you know, this kind of old Ivy color, colored, goth, covered, gothic-looking, you know, Harry Potter-ish campus was was certainly different than um, again uh, 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 the uh, uh, field locations where a lot of us ended up working. So, yeah, I didn't know what to do. I wanted to test my middle. And I had a map of, like, the Americas um, uh, in my dorm room. And I had, like, a pair of darts. And I said, you know what? I got to test. test my middle. So I took a dart and I said, wherever it's going to land, I'm going to move and live for a year. And so I threw the dart. And the biggest, the closest, biggest city was a city called Cochabamba, Bolivia. So I took a year off school and I moved down to Cochabamba, Bolivia. <laughs> And-
0: wow. I'm sitting here with my mouth like open
1: right now. Wow. <laughs> no, I don't know. It was like hubris or folly. But, um, you know, I, there was kind of an alumni connection. Someone knew someone else, someone knew someone else. And I was able to get a job as a janitor in the local university museum. And as part of my job as a janitor, aside from like cleaning toilets and, you know, mopping floors and stuff, was uh, to clean the exhibits and like to clean the the storage cases. And so, you know, they were, you know, uh, one of the things that was... Um, uh, that was there were, were all these mummies. And so, you know, one, you know, and as I'm cleaning them off the dust to get them, you know, clean off the exhibition, you know, windex the, the exhibition mirrors, uh, I kind of started to think, you know, are these mummies male or female? What did they die of? Um, and um, so, and and that really got me turned on to kind of bioarchaeology um, which I didn't really even know was a discipline until I got to graduate school. So I definitely had a love for anthropology. I didn't have great mentorship. Um, I did have some, I had some great professors, uh, Janet Monge and Melissa Murphy. Um, uh, Janet Monge is the keeper of the bones at UPenn. Uh, uh, Melissa Murphy is now at the University of Wyoming, which has a great graduate program. And those were two professors that really, um, really encouraged and supported, um, my work in, you know, what, what, what eventually turned out to be kind of a bioarchaeology thesis. And then from there, um, so yeah, um, you know, part of being an archaeologist or an anthropologist, I think you have to have kind of a MacGyver-like ability or an ability Mm -hmm. (laughs) to kind of, um, innovate or be entrepreneurial, be creative. So, um, uh, when, I, when I decided that I was going to do a thesis project on these, these mummies that I had been cleaning, I looked in like the Bolivian Yellow Pages and I found a guy with um, a portable x-ray machine. And he came to the museum and he x-rayed all these mummies and the 26 of them. And that, that actually became the basis for my senior thesis project. And having done a senior thesis project, I think, made me a more competitive candidate when applying to grad schools. So I applied to six grad schools, got into half of them, and I went to the one that gave me the most money. Um, and, and was that Vanderbilt? That was Vanderbilt, okay. yeah. And um, it was a uh, that at that stage, um, you know, it's hard because for students who want to go into bioarchaeology or forensic anthropology Vanderbilt is is not necessarily the strongest school in the country for that people say well maybe you go to University of Tennessee Knoxville right where the body farm is or mm-hmm. Arizona State where they have you know uh, the largest program in the country but i was really interested in 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 the idea that and following kind of the idea or the mantra that to be a good bioarchaeologist i had to be an excellent anthropologist, and Vanderbilt's program specifically looks, uh, all the, the entire faculty there is focused on, um, uh, the Americas, kind of south of the Rio Grande, so Mesoamerica, uh, South America, Amazonia, as well as the Andes. Um, so I really wanted, I really was, I really wanted to become proficient in that area and become a specialist in that area, those areas, that, that huge area of the world. And, um, yeah, so, and uh, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed my time at graduate school, but it was, I worked under Tiffany Tong, um, and uh, yeah, I, I was in that program for about, what is it, six, six seven years, so uh, kind of the standard for a PhD program.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Um, having so much of that earlier time being on the East Coast, you know, all your undergraduate and graduate experience, how was the transition to the West Coast? You mentioned, you know, the archaeology here is so different. It's a lot of native populations, whereas what you were saying a lot on the East Coast, it's like colonial farms or whatever.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so how was that transition? Did you notice any distinct differences?
1: Yeah, it's so funny. Well, first of all, you know, um, uh Yeah. I think the kind of the identity politics and the kind of rules and regulations um, about doing archaeology on the West Coast versus the East Coast, certainly there are differences. And that's really because, um, you know, I mean, the (laughs) indigenous populations were subject to, you know, centuries of kind of Mm -hmm. displacement and genocide, um, which is why you have groups from, you know, who originally from the American Southeast now in Oklahoma or in the West and stuff. So, yeah, we don't, there's the, uh, at least the NAGPRA rules, the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, as it stood, um, I think has, is um, uh, certainly... A more sensitive topic in California, and I would say the ancient Southwest, um, and that that sometimes presents a challenge because uh, certainly there are, are we want to respect our, our native groups and their native groups that, for good reason, uh, do not want depictions of human remains. They don't want people touching them, studying them, and that is absolutely within within their right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to think of ourselves, like you know. I, uh, I kind of try to think of every, every grave I'm uh, that I excavate as if this were a, a family member, or a, a grandparent, how would, I, how would I treat that person? Um, so it's not just about kind of throwing bones into a bag. It's really, again, about re- recreating human life, uh, reconstructing kind of the lives of, of people you know, uh, without history, people who did not have a writing system to tell us what went on. So, I mean, in terms of East Coast, West Coast, the main thing I guess I noticed was like a California drawl like it's <laughs> in California. So, hey, Professor Kieran. So, <laughs> but that's. Uh, I've definitely- also
0: noticed that UCSB doesn't like to have classes on Fridays because everyone wants to be at the beach.
1: Yeah, that's that's also been very different to me too. Yeah, the um, I've noticed that California has kind of two seasons, which is like beautiful and fire. So yeah, um, it's um, and to have a you know, California is just such a a big state. Um, uh, it's that uh, my my senses, and you probably know this better. My I I, I imagine there's probably. Intra cultural differences within California. My sense is like, at least from what I gather, is like Northern California. Oh, different yeah. Southern California. And yes. So it's <laughs> so always I,
0: a thing when you're meeting people. I feel like, oh, are you NorCal or SoCal?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, really an honor for me to start working at uh, Santa Barbara uh, precisely because um, it had for. 30 years, been the home of um, uh, Dr. Philip Walker, who is really one of the founders of, of bioarchaeology. Again, the bioarchaeology is, is essentially the study of, um, uh, of human remains in... Um, well, pre-his- usually prehistoric, but now more historic contexts. So it's really kind of a body focused approach on the past. Archaeologists can look at, you know, stone tools. They can look at pottery um, or they can they can concentrate on 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 human bodies. And mm-hmm. so it was really, um, really a thrill for me to to be in kind of a sacred space where the discipline uh, really began. And um one yeah, of the UCSB is such a
0: strong tradition in
1: bioarchaeology, yeah, it certainly does when you start to see, you know, who are those professors and, you know, uh, where, you know, a good way for an undergraduate to learn about a graduate program is to go where the the go to the place where, go to the academic home of uh, the author of articles that you enjoy reading. Yeah. And, you know, you, you start to look at that and especially in bioarchaeology, bioarchaeology of the new world, uh certainly UC Santa Barbara has been kind of the eternal spring. Um, And really there is such a, a long and strong uh, tradition. So yeah, one of my, I think, even now, like one of the things I'm most proud of, or or content about, is um, when I got to UCSB, uh, Professor Walker had passed away several years earlier. In his his office and his papers, no one had really touched them in in about five five, five years at that point. So working with his widow, we were able to take his papers and get them accepted into the national anthropology archives at the Smithsonian. And so, yeah, it's really lovely because, you know, in his earlier, um, during his, uh, graduate studies, uh, he was really a Renaissance man, really like a polymath. Um, he had done work under Dahlberg at Chicago, working on kind of dental anthropology. He had done work, um, he had taken um, uh, did a lot of work on primates and dentition and stuff, but really just broadened out. And I, I really, I really respect um, the teaching philosophy or the pedagogy that he really established, which is kind of, in my sense, the way I interpret it is, again, that like a bioarchaeologist, you have a kind of a skill set, but you can apply that to anywhere in the world. I like to tell people, you know, bones haven't changed much in 25,000 years, especially in the last, you know, eight to 10,000 years. So we're seeing something where the same kind of physiological or biological or chemical or molecular processes that we experience in our bodies today are things that people uh, experienced, again, hundreds, uh, thousands, and in some cases, tens of thousands of years ago, if not longer in the past.
0: Yeah. And it's such a broad field. There's so much to explore within every, you know, every um, bones. I could do this entire podcast literally just on people researching bones, but um, <laughs> there's just so much to be learned and Mm -hmm. uh in so many different things like I always think about how um I don't know if you know Weston McCool but he's a graduate student yeah I hope to have on the podcast
1: he's a doctor now he is yeah he's Dr. Dr.
0: McCool oh my gosh (laughs) and um I had the lovely pleasure of having him at an osteo b and he doesn't have a background he didn't have a background in um skeletal remains and he just had this question about you know warfare and how uh Mm -hmm. trauma is and
1: so I think it's so interesting what is the perspective we take and what is our unit of analysis and when I say kind of unit of analysis what I'm talking about is like you know what are what what is the thing that uh, we are going to focus on and and either qualify or quantify in some ways so yeah uh yeah I had uh, West team when did he come like 2013. He is definitely like he picked up osteology very quickly. So it's nice no yeah. that he went from like acing the course to teaching it in in a couple of years. So and I expect the same for you, Gabby. So no no pressure <laughs> there. But um, you know it's you know I think um, uh, it you know it bioarchaeology, forensic anthropology is one of those fields where, you know, if you really, just like anything, you really kind of instantiate that knowledge, uh, if you can explain it clearly. You know, if you can explain something clearly to someone else, then you probably have a handle on it, and it works for anthropology. But my sense it probably works for chemistry, and it probably works for engineering and other stuff too. So, our ability, I think, especially in anthropology, to be a be good communicators, uh, oral, uh, written, uh, is is really important, and more so now than ever, um, given that there is there is a cacophony of, of voices out there and um, uh, certainly, uh, miss, miss, uh, miss, uh, or distinct understandings of, of the world and the people in it. Um, and I think anthropology has a lot to offer in terms of making meaning of that kind of, kind of the cacophony of the human experience.
0: I agree. What do you wish you would have known when you started the field and what advice would you give to someone who wants to pursue a career in a similar field like myself?
1: (laughs) Yeah so again I think one of the um, one of the uh, it's important to have a thick skin. Um, A lot of what we do is kind of uh, grant writing or article writing, uh, which usually undergoes peer, uh, which undergoes peer review, and some of those reviews uh, can can be kind of tough. So um, uh, certainly, academia has its own challenges. But I think the yeah, the ability to um, to have a, to have a thick skin, but also persevere, is important to be entrepreneurial. I think one of the one of the differences I think as I've gotten older and grayer is um you know I used to I used to think kind of as uh, that that um that classes and work in the field provided a a chance for me to be kind of an academic academic boot camp you know yeah. where it's you know it can be tough and I think in the intervening years since I was 16, you know, um, I think one of the things that I've really learned is um, to have compassion. And that's really important because there's always going to be kind of obstacles and whether you're in the field or, or in the classroom and, and to be able to, um, understand that and understand that everyone has a a basic humanity is is certainly um, an important characteristic in terms of advice to give someone in terms of pursuing a career in a, in, in bioarchaeology or, or um, forensic anthropology. Okay. My advice is that you have to go to the, the best school for what you want to do Um that also gives you the most money. So um, when we, there've been recent academic studies, but uh, they've done studies about where, especially as women, where do you, um, who ends up with tenure track teaching jobs or, and um, by and large, a lot of, you know, it's like, you know, the overwhelming majority of, of, of those folks come from like a dozen, you know, a dozen graduate programs. So, um, you know, when I went to Vanderbilt, I said, all right, maybe I'm not in the strongest, you know, we don't have a forensic anthropology program there. So it's definitely not the, you know, selling myself as a, as a forensic anthropologist. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of competition and there's certainly people with more experience than I do. But if they were look, if, if, you know, I was kind of, Uh, I took the calculus that I could, as a bioarchaeologist and one who was doing her own field work rather than just looking at museum collections, I could kind of sell myself as an archaeologist, a bioarchaeologist and a forensic anthropologist, but also a specialist in Latin America. Um, And so uh, I think... um, I also think it's important to go to maybe this is my bias as a Boazian, but I, I, it's really my um, I, I'd encourage people to go to schools where they have the opportunity to take a four field approach. Oh. That is uh uh, anthropology programs that aren't too boutique-ish, you know, um, that still allow you to learn cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, physical, biological anthropology, and cultural anthropology, and, 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 you know, applied anthropology too. If, um, and, and I think that, that well-roundedness, um, is, is extremely helpful, um, it's helpful for the student, I think, or the the practitioner, to better understand again the world that they are immersed in. But it also, I think, um, makes you kind of a Swiss Army knife on the uh, job market. So, I think, uh, yeah, look for you know for for grad programs, it's also much different than undergrad programs. Undergrad programs are kind of like where you live, where you get a a scholarship, uh, US News and World Report rankings. Yeah. And like grad school is really about the person. So, you know, you, you when you study with you know, when you go to a graduate program, you're essentially kind of it's 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 a medieval practice. I mean, it literally dates to medieval times. It's kind of like a system of patronage. So you have your advisor, who and it's kind of there's a series of um, rites of passage that you have to go through to go from you know the uh, the novice to the professor. And those rites of passage are your oral exams or your um, your uh, comprehensive exams, uh, your proposal, getting, and eventually writing the dissertation. Um, And so, uh, you know, you have to take, so you want to learn, you want to go to a a school that has a tradition of placing students. That means their students are getting jobs. So you always want to ask when you're looking at schools, you know, where do your students go after they graduate here? How long does it take to finish? There's a lot, there's a big difference when um, it takes, you know, six years versus 10 to 12. Um, you also want to ask uh, if students are publishing, and if so, where? Um, what kind of grants are people getting? Uh, National Science Foundation, American Association of University Women, Warner Grant. Uh, those are, you um, Those are important questions to ask. Um, The opportunities for teaching are also uh, key. Again, you can, um, uh, I have a lot, there's been a lot of Anthro graduates who have become science teachers in high schools and kind of preparing that next generation. Uh, So the ability to even uh, to practice Teaching, um, especially as a grad student, um, is is really important, and so uh, and those are all important, I think, questions to ask when you look at graduate schools. Because uh, as much as you're being assessed by that program. Uh, you are also assessing that program, and and you know, graduate school lasts longer than most marriages, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I think what is it the average American like marriage is like three to five years, and if you get out with a PhD in that time, that's amazing. So you're yeah. dealing with like a long time commitment with um, a, a program. And, and that also means you want to have at least two or three people on the faculty that you could imagine working with, because, you know, it does happen where professors move, they, they die, they, uh, you know, they, they end up um, at a different, at a different institution. And, and, and that can leave the student feeling so, or they can retire, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that can leave the st- student feeling somewhat um, abandoned. Um because there is that close, I think, generally tends to be that close relationship. I think it's uh, between professor and and student. I think it's also important to know, uh, to get a sense of how many people your pers- prospective advisor is advising. So if they have two or three students, that actually means they can give you uh, time, you know, and time is precious, right? The time mm-hmm. to to read your drafts, to have kind of brainstorming sessions. If the professor you want to work with has 11, 12 students, it's going to be very hard for you to kind of fight for a chunk of time where you can have kind of meaningful kind of pure learning experience. Um, and so those are um, those are the questions that um, I, I would ask In terms of the other advice, too, um, one of the things that I was never good at, I'm getting better now, is work-life balance. And, you know, one of the things I think my biggest regrets in grad school is a lot of times, you know, our summers are when we can do our excavations. Yeah. Right? And so I, like, I've never gone to, I had you know, I had all my... My sisterhood, you know, all my friends at Bryn Mawr, all my college friends, and you know, life went on for them. They had got married, they had kids, and I, I, I got invited to those things, but I was never present. I was always in the field, and part of me feels bad. Certainly, kind of feels bad about that. About um, at the time, I think it was, you know, I want to get done. I want to get ambitious, you know. J- wedding's always happen in July and I gotta be in the field in July. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's only now again that I'm going gray that like, I, I, you know, I, I cherish those moments that I have, um, with old friends, um, and, and those important and being there for them in their, in the important moments of their life and the lives of their families. And so as hard as it is, um, it's um it's a very fine line to walk because it's um again graduate school uh, about fifty percent in anthropology fifty percent of people who begin a prog- program won't finish so that's already half and then again um, an exceedingly small number of those people are going to find you know come out of the gate with stable employment um, and so um, on the one hand you have to be very disciplined. Um, good with time management, self-directed. Um, but you know, I remember like my first year at uh, at UCSB. Like, I was working all like all the time, and to such to such an extent that like I would I would like fall asleep on the on the couch in my office, and oh. like, you know, and they'd like find you know the custodial staff would be like find me and stuff and. You know, and part of that, yeah, is kind of the work of a new professor trying to build a record and get work out. Um, But also, um, I don't think in the long run that that plan would have been, you know, it's probably like that probably is not the best plan. It's probably gives you like it's like a a short track to a heart attack. (laughs) So so I think um, I think uh, having hobbies and having a life outside of academia is important. When I was in grad school, um I waitressed at an Indian restaurant pretty much the whole time I was in Nashville. They had barbecue chicken tikka masala, but whatever, right? <laughs> so, um but that just even that, you know, just bussing tables, uh got a little, you know, I got some I got a little walking around money, but it also exposed me to something that was totally non, you know, non-academic. And more recently, I've developed interest in like pottery, like on the wheel and stuff. Oh,
0: that's so fun.
1: Yeah. It's just like, just to get some, you you know, you always need to find some Zen and centering and kind of grounding because school is stressful and it's only gotten, it's only gotten worse, you know, so it's not easy.
0: I think that was really, really wonderful, well-rounded advice that you gave. And I, I know that um, it's been really helpful to me. I think transparency in the process of academia and um, just making sure that students have the resources they need to be able to be as successful as they can be. Like you said, just knowing the right questions to ask. So thank you so much for giving me uh, your two cents on that. I think it's really, really valuable information.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Um, So something that you brought up is your work and involvement with forensic anthropology. Mm -hmm. So for some of our listeners, including some of my own family members who still don't quite understand what, what the role of a forensic anthropologist in a criminal investigation is, could you kind of shed some light on that as well as Um, talk to us about some of your own involvement in forensic work?
1: Sure. Um, You know, uh, so forensic, so while bioarchaeology is the study of human remains in prehistoric or historic context, forensic anthropology is an applied science. So it's the study of human remains um, in usually a contemporary forensic, that means criminal or legal or or, uh, context. So... In bioarchaeology, we're studying, you know, we're studying the the human, uh, you know, we're studying people's teeth to see what they ate. Um, A forensic anthropologist will study the teeth of a skull to look for their dental records and and actually put a kind of a social security number, like Mm -hmm. an identifier on on that person. So the idea with forensic anthropology really is to... um, uh, uh, get the kind of the profile of that individual uh, and also um, uh, when possible consult with the coroner or medical examiner on the potential manners and uh, causes of death. So those kind of that manner and cause of death is really so, is, is something that only uh, the coroner can do for legal reasons. But, you know, most doctors deal with living people and even mm-hmm. pathologists they deal with people who are you know, let's be frank, they're, they're juicy, you know. Yeah. And so um, it, you'd be surprised about how many kind of patho- pathologists, coroners, medical examiners seek the, um, the advice of forensic anthropologists um, when they're dealing with just skeletonized remains, because... It's a very different skill set. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, and it requires, you know, it requires um, looking at uh the hard tissue um the bone and the teeth itself uh with i think kind of certainly kind of a a greater precision than uh the you know the coroner would the coroner is busy measuring the weight of the the internal organs they're mm-hmm. uh you know uh, looking doing toxicology scans of urine or body fluids um whereas the forensic anthropologist is is taking kind of you know again, on almost any case, unidentified remains and trying to put an identification on them. And so, um, so uh, now, unlike Bones or CSI or, you know, any of the gazillion shows that have come out, there really isn't a need for a forensic anthropologist in every town. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, um, I do uh you know in the cases that i've uh been involved in uh they kind of range from like Ventura, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo counties so if someone finds human remains there they tend to call me forensic anthropology is really competitive and there there aren't as many jobs uh, as one would think, based on kind of the t v shows,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: um, but that doesn 't mean uh you can 't uh play a meaningful role, even as an archaeologist. again, a lot of the tools that forensic anthropologists use if you 're excavating a mass grave or you 're looking for a clandestine grave, mm-hmm. you need those archaeological skills to be able to uh, to excavate um uh, uh, and identify where, where people are buried. Um, it would be beneficial to have a good knowledge of biogeochemistry and isotopes. So you can say, all right, well, we can take the molecular content of these bones, dissolve it into a soup, um, and get a sense of where, uh, uh, you know, where people's water sources, uh, at where the people uh, actually came from based on what they ate and the water they drank. So um, it really is kind of true that you are what you eat, plus or minus a few parts per million. Um, uh, those are some of the, the the tools that forensic anthropologists use. In, and in the context, nine out of 10 times that I'm called by police or the California you know, Department of Law, uh, what is it, uh, California Department of Law Enforcement stuff um, is uh, nine out of ten times it's an animal bone. Um, in cases where there have been human remains, and a lot of times uh, they'll be like... Uh, you know, some professor or something will move, some old doctor will move out of his house and the new people moving in will find like a skeleton, literally a skeleton in the closet. (sighs) And, you know, so the idea is, you know, is that, you know, was that part of this doctor's like anatomical class or, you know, is this some you know, CD, you know, secret. My (laughs) understanding is that in Santa Barbara County, there are 26, um, unsolved uh, cold cases that involve, I think, skeletal remains. So there's... Um...
0: Well, that just piques all of my interest. Yeah. I... <laughs> it shouldn't. But
1: no. It does. No, I mean...
0: Because I know I... experts have tried to solve them, but in my mind, I'm like, I can be
1: like bones. Totally. Well, that's <laughs> the thing, too. I mean, the uh, I, I frequently consult with um, UCLA's School of Law and um, mm. And um, they, uh, their idea of what kind of forensics and what you can learn from bones is is from TV. And they're and they're lawyers. They're lawyers who are going to defend people in cases where forensics end up being important, or, or prosecute them. Um, and um, and so it's um, w- what. Uh, oh the last time i was at ucla i was doing kind of a master class um and uh you know they uh we were uh the the course had actually looked at a netflix um documentary called making a murderer which features um in where forensic anthropology, the the study of human remains and skeletal remains is a is a key aspect of of what ends up I think being kind of a sketchy, potentially wrongful conviction. Mm-hmm. And um the so, so
0: just so our listeners know, she has like a twenty page document, it's probably more than that, <laughs> that you created with was it one of your family members to explain why the evidence was yeah. so great.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. Sometimes I, I tag team. My sister is um, a civil rights attorney oh. and she um, works in a public interest law firm in in Pittsburgh right now. But she really deals with prisoners rights. That's what she's done for the past 10 years. So just just basic rights of prisoners, being able to get medicine. Um, she's working on on covid stuff, but and and working on cases of wrongful conviction or or and really just advocating for uh, basic human rights, um, for people, people in jails, that is people who have not been convicted of crimes. Their only crime is, uh, you know, their crime is is being brown or black. Um, their crime is being poor, um, Mm -hmm. there, uh, but that is not, you know, um, not being able to pay your parking tickets should not be a death sentence, you know? Um, and so, uh, so sometimes I need help with legal stuff and uh, or, or kind of an understanding of that, and she'll sometimes ask me for uh, to to work as a consulting forensic anthropologist on some of her cases. So yeah, so with this, and if, I, if anyone is interested, there's 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 certainly tons of documentaries uh, that feature forensic anthropology. This making a murder one was uh, was particularly interesting because the bones you know, again, made such a difference. And I, you know, when I did my master class, uh the UCLA law students were, um, they were saying like, really, how, how much can you actually tell from a bone? Like, if the bone is, you know, if it's burnt, like, what does it matter? Like, can, is it really, you know, what can you tell, you know, and they're thinking, I think in their heads, just like anybody would, it's like, well, you know, like, let me put a piece of chicken on a barbecue and like, see what happens, you know? So, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, in terms of, I think uh, the, the newest and kind of most um, uh, provocative, but also um, compelling uh, use of forensics now is the forensic genealogy. So I've actually had students that are now starting to get into like go, uh, anthro majors who are going into like um, uh, forensic genealogy or um, uh, as genealogical consultants. And that's really changed the field, um, you know, the idea of, of DNA.
0: Um, I was going to ask, that's that's like trying to find um, people based on like familial DNA, right?
1: Yeah. And that okay. also, again, there's there's certainly, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine there have been DNA has, sometimes technology comes ahead of law. So what do you do when you have a a John Doe who you know has a DNA, you know, has a DNA profile that is unique in the world, Mm -hmm. but you actually don't have that, you know, you don't have that person's name or social security number. Yeah, you don't have anything
0: to compare it to.
1: Exactly. And so also the idea of people who maybe 10 years ago took an Ancestry.com test and now find their DNA as part of a... Uh, you know, a part of a public database. Um, yeah, you know, it, uh, it you know, it begs the question, how can this, you know, how can this we've seen how it can be used for good golden state killer and stuff. Yes. But, um, you know, there are certainly privacy issues. And I, um, I don't know, I, I, I personally would not wouldn't take a DNA test. Like I wouldn't, I, I think, I I think I value my pri- my privacy, my genetic privacy too, especially again because the law hasn't come up, and I don't know I don't want to I don't want to like paint a portrait of a dystopian future, but um you know uh, DNA is important, but it's it's not a panacea. So um, one of the big kind of new things you may hear on TV or kind of Dateline or, you know, 48 hour, whatever these, these crime shows, um, is the idea of like touch DNA where, you know, we are so good now. You don't need a whole vial of someone's blood to, to discern their DNA. You need a couple of skin cells, epithelial skull, mm-hmm. right? The problem is, is that for example, the, uh, the forensic uh, human biology forensic kind of program at University of Indiana, I think it was them. They showed, for example, that touch DNA could move from a victim to mm. the you know to the ambulance they went in, you know, and then the next person kind of in that ambulance would pick up that touch DNA and go somewhere else. So, well, I mean that makes sense because we shed epithelial cells, but. right? Yeah, and the question is, we shed them. How easy are they to be picked up. So when we say, "All right, well, this individual's touch DNA was found on the knife," maybe, it, maybe <laughs> it was. But it could be that, you know, someone touched someone else who then touched that knife. Uh If you get what, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, There are still, there's still stuff we have to work out. But certainly the, the amount of DNA or the amount of kind of molecular stuff we need to, to identify people is much less. uh, And less
0: time processing as well.
1: And much, and and much cheaper. So I, I, I think, especially for... People who are up-and-coming forensic anthropologists, I would say as much as you take your anatomy and dissection courses, you should definitely focus um, on kind of this emerging kind of genetic uh, forensic genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a rising field, and and in the next 10 years, there's going to be a lot of uh, demand for it, especially, again, as people, health insurance companies are going to say, well, can we identify whether you're going to have... you know, if your DNA says you have a predilection towards, you know, getting a heart attack or something, you know, do we have to insure you? And these are things that yeah. lawyers and ethicists are working on. Um, but at the end of the day, someone actually has to be able to, you know, to process that goo, you know, and mm-hmm. so, for for anyone going into uh, forensic anthropology. Yeah, I would certainly um, strongly, strongly consider programs that have. um Uh, kind of a a genetic program or genetic contingent or paleogenomic or or genomic contingent so yeah it's um pretty wild
0: um how is your involvement in forensics and I don't know have you have you um directly like testified in a criminal case for like a forensic case I'm not sure
1: yeah, no, okay. I have so I I yeah, I usually don't do trials um but I do do work kind of as a consulting forensic okay. anthropologist. So I'll consult either with and I'm I'm an equal opportunity offender in that sense. Um so I'll work with the the prosecution side as well as the defense side. Yeah. Um and the idea is that, you know, um uh uh, uh the idea is really uh data and facts you know and um and what that what that then means to either either party in an adjudicative process is 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 beyond is that is beyond me yeah i was just
0: curious if it has kind of affected your perception on um just the kind of criminal system in general and the justice system and how evidence is processed and everything because i can imagine being around that so much it would kind of give you a different perspective than someone who's never been involved in things like that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you're, you bring up a great point. I think one of the big misconceptions is, and this probably, I think this dri- probably drives doctors crazy, lawyers crazy, anyone where there's a, you know, there's a TV show about mm-hmm. it, because it kind of gives you the idea that problems can be solved in like 40 minutes plus yeah. so, and really, there's a lot more uncertainty than that. Um, we, you know, we can't, there's not some secret computer that suddenly, you know, creates a 3d hologram of someone or something like we see. It's really kind of actually going back to reference textbooks and taking measurements and samples and, um, and doing, uh, looking for particular, um, uh, identifying features, uh, implants, uh, dental, uh, dental modifications, you know, fillings, braces, um, uh, if they had a you know someone with a broken nose, someone with a i don't know <laughs> a withered arm whatever we're looking kind of for personal identifying characteristics um so yeah, in terms of kind of my in in terms of the criminal justice system what i 've seen is the the at least in in courts but but also in consulting the the deference that is paid to the forensic scientist. Um, needs to be counterbalanced with, uh, you know, with a, a reasonable uh, degree of, like, scientific uh, skepticism. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, bite mark analysis, which had, has sent people to, to death, you know, mm-hmm. has, has been proven kind of bunk okay. um, in terms of a, a kind of a junk science. The same way the, that, um, like, cell phone tower data, as not it uh, has 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 been shown to not be a great uh, 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 let's say the uh it, it, our ide- our ideas of um uh, uh the cer- there's a lot less certainty mm-hmm. so you know it, there are times when they're skeletons and given their the features i i can't tell if they're a man or a woman that's yeah. where DNA would come in and stuff mm-hmm. um but um so I think it's important one to realize what forensics can tell us, but also what where what it can't tell us where no. there's still
0: room for the field to grow, which is what it, I always think
1: about mhm yep, you're totally right so it's um it's certainly um uh, especially hearing i mean case you hear about cases of of um uh, wrongful incarceration based on like junk science or like shady witness, you know, expert, shady expert witness testimony. And, um, w- if anything, it reminds me that the stakes are much higher for yes. bioarchaeology. Certainly, there's a community contingent. There's a social uh, aspect, both of the living and the dead. But you know, it, when you're dealing with forensics, you're dealing with people's lives. Um, and um, you know, when I when I teach like human osteology, I'm uh, like most professors in this country. Um, I'm pretty rigorous in terms of uh, the level of um, uh, detail and the precision that the uh, that students are able to I- identify bones. Mm-hmm. And, and that's only because I imagine our alums one day on the stand as an expert witness. And, you know, in that case, you know, well, what did you see? What, what did you find? You know, it makes a big difference if, you know, uh, to be able to accurately identify, you know, small pieces of bone or to identify trauma Mm -hmm. and, and other factors like that. So yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly there's, um, did you do the
0: bone in a box exercise with your office? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. We did that too.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That bone in a box was uh, something that my my professor in college did. Uh, it was, yeah, bone in a box, bone in a bag. Mm-hmm. She was, she was, she gave us like pig parietals though. So she, oh my gosh, I know. But yeah, that's the idea. It's really a, also our osteology is a, a, a tactile, uh, tactile science, right? Mm-hmm. You really need to be able to hold and palpate things. Yes. Um, so I'm certainly concerned about about how I'm going to teach it coming this fall term, given that we're all teaching remotely.
0: We're going to make it work.
1: Well, yeah, gonna oh, be fine. totally. No, it's going to be great. I'm just going to send every student a half a skeleton yeah. <laughs> wherever they live. And so, yeah. um, and with the hope that we'll be able to deal with fragmentary and smaller and non-human remains, you know, in in coming months afterwards. So. Yeah.
0: And I think that, um, first of all, I, I said this to Dr. Holly too, Uh, thank you for all of your, the hard work that teachers have been putting into, you know, keeping the classes still as academically rigorous and um, you know, our, I feel like as students, our education is very important to us, especially at a pub, top public university. And that transition to online was scary for all of us. So I just want to say thank you. Um, oh, that. no,
1: it's it goes both ways. I mean, it's it's hard to stare at like 40 small gray, mm-hmm. <laughs> small black, screens. So it really is your engagement um, and the engagement of your peers that make any class worthwhile. And that's true, remote or real life. I mean, yeah, um, certainly there's a performative aspect of being a a a professor um and um but uh and so that has to be uh, just like anything has to kind of ha- has become modified in this in this environment but um but again um the fact that uh uh gabby you and others have been able to um just adapt to the circumstances and even thrive as a testament to your own resilience and your own creativity. And, and, and I think your own integrity and one of the best pieces of advice I, I heard um, was a professor. I res- really respect Tom Dillehay who was at Vanderbilt and I was deciding whether to go there. And he looked at me and he kind of said, Texas, <laughs> a genteel Texas accent. And um He said, Daniel, he says, the most important thing you need, you know, to be a good, have a long career is your integrity. And I think that's, that's still true. So you want to be, um, uh, true to yourself and, and true to the stakeholders who depend on you, whether it is a native community, whether it's the police department or whether it's a classroom of students. Um, and, um. But that yeah, that integrity, that that grit and resilience is is are our, our key factors, I think, to that that kind of prevent you from going over to the dark side, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: I, you, I agree.
1: You know, keep you as kind of a rigorous scientist. So yeah. Yeah.
0: Well Um, where can our listeners find more of your work? We didn't really get into it, but that's okay. I think everything else we talked about was so fascinating, but some of your own, you know, your personal research, I know you're working on a book.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My, my, uh, body of disaster. Yeah. That should be coming out in 2021. It's, um, a book that looks at, this was inspired and also aided by, um, by you, Gabby, and other students who put together fantastic case studies of what happens to human bodies in disasters, both natural and social, and so um, there's uh, oh, a couple dozen key uh, kind of vignettes uh, that talk about how human bodies have been or are impacted by by disease, mm-hmm. but also you know by uh, 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 circumstance. So. Um, but if you're, I guess if you're, yeah, if you have insomnia, you can find my work on, <laughs> uh, you can find a cure for that by, um, I'm on, I have published papers on Research Gate, um, and I'm always happy to, um, talk with interested, uh, students or researchers. Indeed, the reason I teach at a university, the reason I got my PhD was to be able to have the, um, the, the honor, the privilege of teaching uh, students at the at the college and university level. And it really is uh, a deep source of, 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 of pride and something that I don't take lightly.
0: Well, I definitely think that you do a wonderful job of that. And I would encourage our listeners that maybe students to, you know, talk to you or consider taking some of your classes if anthropology is something they're interested in. And mm-hmm. um, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Um, Yeah, I think so. Oh, I know. Last piece of advice. If you're working, last piece of advice. If you're going to be an or if you're going to be an anthropologist in a a foreign country, learn the language of that country. If you're going to be working with Indigenous people, learn the language of those Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you the difference uh like speaking Quechua the indigenous language in Peru has made um in terms of I think the the questions I can ask yeah of my research and uh just in terms of community relations I agree um, so yeah that's that's another thing yeah when
0: I was in Spain on my field school I was so confident in my Spanish not even remembering that um In that part of the world, closer to Barcelona, they speak a lot of Catalan, and I do not speak a world word of Catalan. (laughs) And it's a beautiful language, but when you hear them talking, I'm like, "Wow, that sounds like Spanish, but it is not
1: Spanish at all." (laughs) Did you find yourself though? Did you find because I find like I mean, I've taken classes in Catalan, I failed them, but I can speak it fine Uh -uh. Uh, and could not pick up a single word of (laughs) (laughs) it. No,
0: I mean, I was in a taxi with a taxi driver who we were really struggling to communicate. Oh
1: man. And
0: I mean, it was, we, I did it. My, my Spanish yeah. and his Catalan overlapped enough that we could, could do it, but it was, it was interesting.
1: That's the great, that yeah. survive, but that survive, your brain goes into survival mode. So, yes. you know, I have no doubt that if you were to do, you know, six months or a year there on a Fulbright mm-hmm. or something, you would definitely be Benven gutsing. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> as much as you would anything else so that's fantastic
0: yeah well thank you so much for coming on the podcast today um i'm very excited to release this episode and next week we're gonna have um one of the people who you mentioning did a wonderful case study noah hayes
1: Ah. is gonna come
0: on talk about his case study so there there's there's more to come
1: (laughs) fantastic
0: yeah well have a great rest of your day
1: Thank you. And Gabby, thank you for doing this uh, uh, this service to our community at UCSB and also the wider community of, um, of anthropologists. Thank um, you. And I, I look forward to seeing you hopefully in person I sooner know. rather than later. But uh, <laughs> until then, yes. please a, 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 a socially distant, a strong socially distant handshake. Yes. <laughs> um, and yeah, have a great one.